Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. My name is Scott McKean, and with me as usual is my co-host, Eric Ampman. Welcome indeed. Uh, today, uh, we're very excited about the podcast because we're talking about human connection at the community scale. This connection is often described as social capital, a fancy term for neighborliness and the positive energy outcomes it can bring to communities and people. Thank you for, uh, for <laughs> explaining what social capital is. That word uh, or phrase often drives me a little crazy uh, when we get into jargon terms like that. So today's guest uh, is one of the nicest people you will ever meet and uh, an expert in social connection. Ann Harvey was once the coordinator of Abundant Communities, the City of Edmonton program designed to connect people in neighborhoods through door-to-door canvassing and volunteer efforts. Not only that, but Anne also did her master's thesis recently looking at, quotes, neighborliness builds community resilience, neighborhood networks in Edmonton during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, It's very good to have you. Uh, So uh, let's start by talking a bit about your work and why you're interested in community development. Well, you know, for me, I think I've always been community oriented. I'm a fairly relationship oriented person. So I think back even to my childhood and teens and early 20s, I was brought up in a family that was closely connected to a community called L'Arche. It's a, it's a community for adults with intellectual and physical disability. And it's a community that's found all over the world now. But my family, my parents helped out in terms of, of helping create community for folks in a family environment in their neighborhood. And so, you know, if I reflect back, that was a really important formation thing for me as a youth. So we, we want to talk about social isolation today. Uh, I know it's uh, been um, at the heart of your work and uh, the seminal book uh, you know, on social isolation was Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, uh, which was released in the early 2000s. And to its credit, the city of Edmonton um, in 2012, long before other areas of the world uh, started to really look at social isolation. So the uh, city of Edmonton starts Abundant Communities uh, in 2012. And a year later, city council adopted its mental health urban isolation initiative in 2013. You were around at the very beginning of Abundant Communities. Do you remember the impetus? Yeah, for sure. So I was working with someone named Howard Lawrence at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was in a position with the city of Edmonton where I worked really closely with community leagues, but also other groups. And it was very geographical. Uh, the assignment was always neighborhood-based. So I would work with a cluster of neighborhoods. And within that community league structure, there really is, continues to be this desire to build upon the connections that people have at the block level and a lot of people join community leagues seeking more connection where they live. So there was already this interest in building upon what was there. And so we worked with a few different neighborhoods in Edmonton to explore these concepts that John McKnight and Peter Block wrote about in their book called Abundant Community. And really what it is about is a, a strengths-based approach to connecting and identifying through your strengths, the things that you're good at, the things you like to do. 
and then applying that to how you start to intentionally connect with people where you live. So really what we did is we started to build out these concepts that I remember us thinking, you know, this seems so straightforward. This is not rocket science. You know, just go and talk to your neighbors. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that sometimes people feel uncomfortable doing that. We don't necessarily live in a society where people are going to go out and seek out that connection with their neighbors. But I feel really happy to say that I have seen a shift here in Edmonton over the last number of years. And I think what Abundant Community did was it provided user-friendly, accessible terms. It kind of gave people, even though they don't need it, this sense of permission to get to know their neighbors. So we... So a vocabulary to talk about it too, I would think. Yeah. Just that people are... Maybe they know something's missing, but they don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we found was it it percolated people's interest. Oh, what is this idea of being a block connector, for example, on your block? What does that mean? And really, it just means someone who was already kind of naturally someone who would initiate connection and maybe start a garden party or a block party. It was kind of giving them a little bit of a role, not official, it was very organic, but enough of a role that it empowered them to use these skills they had to start helping others on the block connect with each other and form this kind of social network at the block level. So I remember when I was on council, it was really hot. Uh, but it was really hot with community leagues. It was very popular. Yeah. Um, so again, I think further evidence that people were crying out for something. Eric, I, I'm, I'm jumping in too much. It's, it's my nature. But I wanted to ask you, because you worked with the Mennonite Center before, you're now in your work with End Poverty Edmonton, does loneliness, social isolation come up as sort of dynamics in people's flourishing or not? Yeah, for us, it was always sort of at the heart of, you, you, could, you would know if somebody was going to get a great job. You would know if, if a kid was going to graduate school really based on their social capital, you know, and it was the the number one indicator of how well somebody was going to do when they moved to Canada was, was were they making those connections? When I talk about anti-racism, I always say like, if you want to address racism, go say hello to somebody. Like the, those are the things that we need to do. And like, I, I think where I'm really interested in hearing from Ann is this, the idea of like, what happens if we do it and what happens if we don't? Because like intuitively isolation sounds like bad. You know, and not, not having isolation sounds good, but like, why? Why is it good? Why is it bad not to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, this recent few years has really made that question extra important to us. What happens if we connect? What happens if we don't? Like if I think about when we first started to introduce this idea of of really intentional block connecting, for the most part, there was this intrigue and interest and sense of empowerment, but there was also you know, nervousness. I I remember this funny story where someone said at this kind of meeting gathering of a bunch of people who were being block connectors. And they said, yeah, I I feel like there's been moments where I literally physically jumped behind my couch so that the person at the door who was knocking (laughs) didn't know I was actually home. And in that story, we heard that in different ways, multiple times. So there's a little bit of busting out of the boundaries in some cases for some people it, where it, it might not feel like that's what we do here. So it's kind of shifting that. And then in terms of 
what that then means, what people have talked about in that initiative, Abundant Community, and also what I heard in my research is that it gives people a sense of belonging where they live that impacts how they feel mentally, their health improves when they feel like they are actually connected where they live. It improves their sense of security and safety. It improves their sense of purpose. People talked about feeling like, okay, I have, even if it's just, I know of this elder neighbor down the road who is probably going to benefit from a little more help, you know, with the yard or maybe even picking up groceries, that sense of being able to give and help and then the reciprocity that happens gives people this sense of well-being through that connection. And I think the risk of us not doing that is we become too siloed from each other. And we don't, if we find ourselves in a difficult situation, like a pandemic, for example, we don't necessarily have that social capital or those relationships and connections in place to activate, to access easily when we really most need them. So I think there's a benefit any given day. And part of what I looked at and what other researchers like Daniel Aldrich spent most of his time researching is that you need to build resilience. You do that through your connections at the neighborhood level. And then you are more resilient and prepared for if things start to go wrong. Well, I got a question for you, the both of you. Don't jump in again. Because uh, <laughs> I, I do have a question for both of you, which is like, why don't we do this? So I came from Winnipeg and the first time I rode the LRT, I started talking to the person beside me and they got up and left. And when my parents come to visit, they say hello to everyone who passes them. And I'm like, we don't do that here. This is not an Edmonton thing. Like why, what is it about this? Like why aren't we doing more of that? Yeah, you know, my reading of this over the years is it's much more of an Edmonton thing than probably a Toronto thing. That, so yeah. maybe it's the size of the city and in part, maybe it's Manitoba. Having, I could trace my roots back to Manitoba too, so I can I can boast about that. But yeah, I and 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 the other thing I would say, Edmonton is a bit unique with the community league uh, system it has, and how that fosters um, connection, collegiality, cooperation. But I heard I, mean, I always remember being at one event, uh, and an older woman. Uh, she was probably, I'm in my 60s, so I think I could say this, but she was probably m around my age or a little bit younger. She complained that there wasn't enough in her community league for adults, probably single adults. So she was being isolated despite the community league. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that before. I've seen it. It's, I think some community leagues are are able to connect with all ages and be more diverse better than maybe others. And it's interesting to think back on the history of community leagues. When they first started in the 1900s, it was all about advocacy for civic interests. So it was the people wanting to have a voice, uh, have the ear of counselors and compete against the strong voices of developers, business, corporate. And so that was how they came together and organized around that shared interest of having a voice. But with time, it became, there was a shift in the focus of community leagues more into recreation, sport, you know, organ, and that was very much focused on children in, in some areas. And I think what, and then also taking care of amenities, rinks, parks, buildings, and this kind of thing. Kids connect, or adults connected through their kids. It worked. Yes. In a lot of ways. I totally agree. And, and I've heard that so many times from families. Like I think about, you know, 
mutual friend of ours actually who moved here from a city that she perceived to be more lonely than here and not as friendly as Edmonton and came to Edmonton spending a lot of time with her three kids and didn't really know anyone was a newcomer to Edmonton heard about this community league thing sought out hers and her neighborhood became involved in that group and that became her entry into this neighborhood life that she has now become incredibly active in that group that community league yes there were things for her kids but then she connected with other parents and then it really was about who comes to the table and what they want to see organized and now i think what we're seeing is that community leagues can be or are starting to be more reflective of a broader interest space that's kind of what abundant community was about it was about okay you've got this community league they generally only are representing you know somewhere between 10 and 15% of a neighborhood actually so how can we you know increase involvement and and make this actually something that's interesting to people who live there but that's a really interesting uh, stat 15% involved with community mm-hmm. league how did we get here do you think where we have this kind of disconnection or social isolation in 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 modern cities and it's sort of been written about as a problem all over western cities so europe mm-hmm. north america yeah it's it's like we were talking about you know how we all just get into our cars and go mm-hmm. somewhere else and and i think if we see places in the world where it's more of a village type environment Maybe people are biking around more, walking around more. They have more interactions with each other. I think part of it, there's a lot of factors. I think part of it is car culture and spending more time watching TV, more time on our devices. Technology has played a huge part, hasn't it, in how we we connect with each other. So I, I don't want to, before we get too far away from the thread, like the community leagues to me is a really interesting topic always when it comes mm-hmm. to talking about Edmonton because it's so Edmonton, uniquely Edmonton. And mm-hmm. you spend a lot of times with communities. I'm curious about what you've seen them do well and not so well when it comes to social isolation. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question. I think, I think one of the things that community leagues have become really occupied with is the governance of their board, the management of their amenities, the projects that they're in charge of. And and then what happens there is that we get away from kind of the core idea of this is to connect with each other and to hear each other and, and maybe group together around those shared interests. So I think where community leagues have kind of returned to or introduced this idea of let's make this relational, let's connect, let's have block parties and get together on the in the backyard or in the park and just connect as a bunch of humans and talk about what we're interested in, what we like to do, just be, not even, you don't even have to talk about much, just to have that sense of connection. Where community leagues and neighborhoods have started to prioritize relationships, I think then they're starting to really get at this social isolation thing. Because if, if we run it too much focus around um, projects, and the amenities, then that's not going to bring, that's not going to get to the folks who are maybe quietly at home, not knowing how to reach out, not, not having folks coming to see them. There's, there's different ways that, that we can reach out to folks. And I think it, it needs to be through prioritizing social connection and relationship at the block level. 
So if you're the community like Czar, that's what you do. That's what you would dictate would be stop worrying about maintaining the rank. It would be bring people together. Yes. And I would also say, you know, it's nice to have a big neighborhood event, but actually scale it down. Just encourage people to simply get to know the people on their block or their cul-de-sac or in their apartment or condo building. Get to know the people who are really close by and have smaller, easier, more organic, more frequent gatherings with them. And then maybe a couple of bigger ones in the year, but focus on City the city of Edmonton used to charge <clears throat> if you want to have a block party to put yeah. barricades at each end. That is now not the case, unless this new council's changed things. But that, you know, there that is a just have a block party. Yeah. But it, you know, it takes it's funny, it just takes effort. And I think people are you know, I do think we somehow developed this uh, or we have this overdeveloped sense of privacy nowadays. I don't know what caused it, whether that was, a, you know, um, technology and media that we just got more used to not doing it face to face. But, I, I, you know, there are neighborhoods like Westmount where they do that sort of block party thing. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty cool because all the kids are out on the front street running around, the parents are sitting in lawn chairs, relaxing. It's it's quite a neat, neat thing to see. I think, you know, I can't remember if we've really detailed all the causes for, for social isolation. Abundant Communities was certainly an attempt. Do you think it worked? Do you think Abundant Communities succeeded? I think in terms of reminding people or suggesting that social connection at the block level is important. Yes, it was it was a success. It was what I saw in the conversations about it was okay, who cares what it's called? Really who cares what it's called? Who cares if there's a block connector role or if you can get a grant to have a neighborhood connector? Great, these are all organizational pieces, but if you really boil it down, if you look at what this is really about, it's about hey, we need to remember how to be neighborly. Or we need to teach ourselves and each other how to be neighborly. It is about neighborliness. It is about that connection right around you. And it improves your quality of life is what people have said. I think what's really neat about abundant communities is just that the geography too. Just a quick story. When I was writing my column for the journal, I ended up writing about social isolation. Uh, because a woman, a woman had written me about her life and that was basically she had a good job. She liked her work colleagues, but she'd go home at night and she didn't have much. So she was lonely. So I wrote a couple of columns. We held a couple of events. We did a walking tour of uh, Alberta Avenue and a a tour of Chinatown. But they didn't sustain. We just sort of, in in some ways, it was like teasing social connections. So that's where I think it's so important that it be done in neighborhood, like Mm -hmm. Abundant Communities is doing. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think the more organic, the better. You know, it helps. Like, I think there's a common thread of conversation around the role of services, service providers, program providers, whether that be the city, nonprofit, church, all these different entities that exist in our communities, really ultimately with the purpose of making life better for people. And and there is a, a huge mandate for people to connect too. I think that is very important to have in, in our culture. And we also need to each take responsibility, each of us as individuals, as households for 
our own sense of connection too. If we all take up that responsibility, if we all are intentional about, oh, who does live in the house across the street or across the hallway in this building that I share an elevator with, you know, if we take the time to to reach out and just learn a few names, that will make a difference. I, I only laugh <laughs> because I do the elevator trip every day and yeah. it's like, oh no, somebody's coming on and we're going to have this five... So we we wanted to talk about something really specific, which was your thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you give us sort of a, a high level overview of what you were looking into and some of the findings you you uh, came across? Yeah, for sure. So what I was really interested in affirming, I guess, because there is already a lot of research on this, and I observed it in my work in my practice, was I wanted to affirm that these organic connections, these relationships in at the block level these neighborhood networks, as they're called, essentially just neighborhood groups, which could be as small as two or three people. But that involvement, engagement in that creates resilience individually and as a household and as a community. And that resilience is really important in terms of quality of life, in terms of our wellness. And I also looked at this additional layer of in terms of disaster preparedness. So my research looked at the impact of engagement in neighborhood networks in Edmonton specifically during the COVID-19 pandemic because we suddenly found ourselves not able to drive all over the place to be a part of these groups and clubs and sports Mm. facilities and all of these things and and church communities and, and everything that we needed to travel anywhere out of our neighborhood for, we suddenly couldn't do. We might not even have been able to go and visit our own family members. And so we were hyper local. And so I was interested in seeing if folks who had already in some way created connection through neighborhood network involvement, if that set them up for success, were they more resilient and able to cope better than if they hadn't been involved and and ask them to reflect on that and to reflect on what it had felt like having that neighborhood network to connect with first virtually, but then, you know, across the fence or, you know, down the hallway of their building or out front of their building or down the end of the sidewalk, did that make a difference to them in their day-to-day wellness and their ability to cope with a really difficult time? So I explored research by others like Aldrich who have looked at community resilience in terms of preparedness for disaster. And, And then I looked at what that experience was like here in a few Edmonton neighborhoods and really heard you know, the overall theme was, yes, this this interaction, these relationships that I had with my neighbors, the people right there around me, made it easier. It meant that I didn't feel as isolated. It meant that I felt a little more safe and secure. And I felt like there was purpose for me. I knew about the person down the road who needed help getting groceries, for example. And we would team up and help that person. So it was it was really interesting to hear what people's experience was. And essentially, in my findings, I had, there were six themes that emerged. And, and I looked at, you know, the specifics of what it meant to be involved in a neighborhood network and what the supporting processes and resources were that they maybe had in place through Abundant Community or their community league or some other group. But really the four themes that I think are of most relevance to this conversation is people talked about their, their sense of belonging and connection 
through those groups, um, their sense of neighborliness and reciprocity. So knowing there were people they could help and who would help them and that they even knew that they existed to be able to tap into that. And the sense of responsibility and purpose to take care of each other and and that safety and security piece. So did Macaulay stand out at all? Like I, mm-hmm. I just wondered if it, I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, when I was reporting for the journal, I did a number of stories out of Beverly a year after this horrific crime. So the idea was to go in, find out how the neighborhood's doing. And Beverly, in that part of Beverly, Abbotsfield, was challenged uh, with poverty. Um, and yet when I w- was allowed behind the scenes, took a bit of work to get there, I found these all these networks you couldn't see, like... Uh, communal kitchens and communal sort of babysitting and all this stuff. It was really neat. And I thought, you know, perhaps necessity being the mother of invention, you you know, that in those neighborhoods, you just have people, you know, and organizations helping them out to do that. But what I was blown away, what a wonderful neighborhood it was. And, and, and thought then of some of the neighborhoods I've lived in or heard about where people pull into their front car garage don't have any connection with, probably couldn't name five people on their block. And, you know, maybe that's not a problem for most people. I don't know. It seems uh, that a life that is bereft of connection is not a life well lived, but maybe that's my bias. What do you, what, what do you think, Ed? Yeah, I think there's so many things to unpack there. And I think it's really interesting. You know, there might be this thought that a more affluent neighborhood um, that it would be easier for them to create these block groups, these neighborhood groups. Yeah. But they, like you said, you know, that necessity piece is key. I mean, if if you don't feel like you need that, you might not be so motivated. If, if you look at areas where um, poverty is more prevalent, and I think about places I've traveled to, it disaster and challenge and you know, significant issues or events that a community is dealing with brings people together. Mm. And so then now you're coming together out of more of a need than just a want or a desire. And and then that connection that you build builds your resilience. And then over time, you see those those benefits day to day and then and longer term. So I think, it, yeah, it's been really interesting. I know I've I've heard that before, Scott. With the you know the when you have an attached garage, and especially in the winter, you might just drive in, and uh, and then you might not know your neighbors, and you might not see them unless you're shoveling snow together. It's interesting. I shared that with a friend of mine who does live in a neighborhood where you might kind of think that that's what you would see. And I don't know if this was an isolated situation. I hope that it's not. I hope that it's people are really starting to value neighborliness more. She told me about how. She, they did get to know each other as families with the need for babysitters and childcare and looking out for each other's children. So they kind of came together around that. Mm-hmm. And I loved hearing that because it was actually something that I used to say a lot, you know, picture suburbia with your attached garage and you drive in and nobody's talking to anybody. And then I was challenged. This friend said, well, no, wait a second. We do. So I think it's in pockets all over the place in surprising ways, in surprising spots where we might not expect it. Yeah, I think, and I think we're, we have a guest coming up who will talk a little bit more about urban design. But I always thought the front veranda 
was the greatest social community connector of all. Yeah. Uh, and, if, you know, almost <laughs> as a city, if we could say, you you have to have a front veranda yeah. <laughs> on your house so you, yeah. so you connect to people. But, yeah, but, but then people are connectors. You just described this situation. Maybe she's a super connector. And I've yeah. met people like that, too. It's so true. There are people who just have this skill set. Right. That's what they do. That is their thing. And thank goodness for them because yeah. they get out there and help folks who might not have that, but actually still feel they're missing some sense of belonging yeah. and then they benefit from it. Yeah, I got a friend like that. She uh, she lives in a very affluent neighborhood with a very long driveway into a garage. Uh, you could you could avoid seeing anybody if you really wanted to with great ease. Uh, but she built a living room on her front yard and knows everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, this is a it's a very wealthy neighborhood, but she's that person, you know, mm-hmm. like the neighborhood has so much benefit from her just living there. Like it's some, some people are just unbelievable at it. Yeah. Natural connectors. I mean, that's in abundant community. It was really seeking out those natural connectors and giving them a name. Okay. You're a block connector now. Cool. So, now I have a, which a could role. lead me into Danny Hoyt, <laughs> Danny Hoyt yes. being the guy that took on Oliver yes, with all the high rises and medium rises and walk ups and yeah. to do that. And, and Danny, if, you ever listen to this or someone you know listen to this, you were always greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, what Danny did was it was extra challenging for him because yeah, he had, you know, multi-dwelling homes, condos, apartments. As you all, as you may know, you know, sometimes you can only get into the vestibule and then you need to have buzzer number. So how are you going to start connecting and meeting folks unless you live there? You have to live there. And that that was affirming too, though. You know what? That connection has to start at the, the most granular level. Mm. And so he was, he started with his own network, his own social capital and Oliver, and was really just, you know, encouraging people to connect in their buildings, identifying those natural leaders, those natural connectors, you know, in each building and then having them kind of initiate. And it could just be like, hey, we're neighbors. Maybe should we exchange numbers just in case we ever need anything and and then maybe that leads to hey we're uh, walking down the street to go get ice cream do you want to come you know it, it it's it starts as simple as just exchanging numbers for safety even and for for connection on that level and then it might lead to you know more of a neighborly relationship from there you uh you are doing a different work now e4c what, what um, what's your yeah, uh, what's your uh, role there uh, and what are you doing Yes. E4C. So I oversee all of the school and community-based programs, which might not surprise you with my interest in, in community development. And really E4C is a community development organization that applies a strengths-based approach, which is totally my jam. I mean, that's, that's what really this is about is, you know, identifying by what we have rather than our deficit, by what what we're good at, what we like to do, what we care about, what our goals for ourselves are. So E4C is empowering the persons served by the organization's programs and services to identify by their strengths and then build from that and work together based on those strengths to make life better. And and that's really the approach that was taken in the previous work that I did too and what I was looking at in my research is how do we build upon that how are you liking it? How are you liking this? And how long have you been there? Well, not long. I'm new. I just started there in December. Okay. 
And uh, so, yeah, I'm a member of the executive leadership team there. Wonderful group of people. I'm learning a lot every day. And I would say, you know, I, I worked with E4C as a partner when I worked at the city of Edmonton. And, and I've always heard about the great work they do, but I really only saw the tip of it all. Like it's been incredibly inspiring to learn about the staff. There's about 400 staff and uh, the housing programs, the, the Women's Emergency Accommodation Center, Macaulay Apartments is, is community development right there in action in Macaulay. I'm, I'm really blown away actually by what I'm seeing. I probably weigh more than I should because of Kids in the Hall, which then became the hallway and those, uh, it, these scones they had. Oh yeah. Amazing. The, yeah. Are those white chocolate raspberry yeah, yeah. things? Oh yeah. They're, they're <laughs> incredible. Yeah. The hallway cafe in city hall. Oh my goodness. The food is great. And they do, uh, they do great catering too, actually. <laughs> really <laughs> little, delicious. little yeah. ad for them. Yeah, really. it's, it's a great <laughs> program. And I, I, when I was writing, uh, and at city hall, I wrote about a couple of the graduates, I think, of the program there. And uh, really neat to hear kids coming in with not a lot of skill or even just basic life skills and then leaving and having success. Tremendous stories. Love to, love mm -hmm. to hear that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we should wrap up on this last thought. So, you know, you're walking through the River Valley, you're around the podcast broadcaster with your family. And you've got all these ideas that are percolating uh, around right now. What is the one thing you think people should take away from our conversation? Hmm. I think it really comes down to what each of us can do. And so, you know, we talk about all the different things that are available to us, but that isn't accessible to everyone. And in some cases, in some neighborhoods, in some li lives, circumstances, you know, it is hard to access what's there. And so that local, that hyper-local connection is really what it boils down to. So I think if we can all think about, okay, who does live around me? Because imagine if we all did that, if, if, or even some, most of us, or even, you know, even half of us, if we think about, you know, who lives around us. The math is good there, Anne. If half of us did it, the other half would benefit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does that work? I don't know. I'm not a mathematician as people know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, I just think, you know, if we all could think about who lives around us, who's close to us, um, you know, and you don't even have to have a house, you know, your houseless community, we take care of each other in that close little pod. If everyone did that, a huge difference. I mean, it would be incredible. I mean, ultimately most nonprofits I think are trying, you know, ultimately you want to work yourself out of a job because that social challenge is no longer a challenge and, and we need nonprofits and thank goodness for them. And if we can also take responsibility for taking care of the people who live in our neighborhood and they take care of us and we're neighborly together, incredible things can happen. So, and uh, really, uh, on behalf of Eric and I want to thank you for coming in today. I really appreciate it. You, uh, have done uh, amazing work in Edmonton and really appreciate that. We'll have you back another time because of these programs you're doing with E4C. There'll be another jam that we can uh, plumb if that's not mixing a metaphor, plumb a jam. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation with you both. So, 
Eric, I find this entire discussion of social isolation fascinating and troubling. Um, estimates are that um, loneliness, social isolation, is as hard on you as smoking, and, and it's also an impact your mental health. And it's a huge challenge to overcome. Um, you uh, brought up, Eric, um, a concept that I think is integral to this conversation, personal responsibility. I've also read that uh, the number one predictor of, of hospitalization is loneliness. So it affects your, physically, your physical health as well. Yeah, I, personal responsibility. So I, I think we make a lot of choices and sometimes we don't make informed choices. We make really easy choices. The example that is in my head right now is I used to take the bus to work when I was working downtown. I'd go there, I'd chat with the people at the bus stop. I'd get on the bus. A friend of mine uh, who I worked with would knit. And so we'd just chat while he knitted and then same thing on the way home. Now I drive to downtown I'm miserable in that commute. I get home. I'm angry because uh, <laughs> I'm sitting there screaming at cars and all yeah. that. I, I'm making a choice that's hurting me. And so I think I need to reconsider things like that. Should I be taking the bus? It's better for me. So my eight years on council, we talked a lot about good urban design and how that urban design can be connecting or disconnecting. So... um uh, I always loved when I was outdoor knocking during campaigns was the place with the front veranda. People who sit out in their front veranda are connecting to their neighbors. You know, maybe the first two times the person goes by with their dog, nothing happens. But the third time, maybe somebody waves at the other person and they start to get to know each other. So design can have an impact. Uh, parks, I think, are either accessible and enjoyable or not. Um, I think of Borden Park, I often see it fairly empty, a beautiful park, but that might be because there's not, not seen to be enough parking uh, around the place. So, so urban design is an interesting thing, but I also think, and I'm really intrigued by your concept of personal responsibility because uh, neighborhoods, some neighborhoods are really lovely in the way they have green space and the way they invite people out of their houses to connect. Others, not so much. I, I think consumers may have some responsibility here too. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we all have that. Uh, you know, what Anne's talking about making those connections, you have an option to sit on your back deck uh, and talk with your family, or you can sit on the front deck and talk with your family and wave at your neighbors. And that's a choice that we, we make. And I think we just should be mindful that it's a choice that we don't, we don't have to be, we, we can be neighborly or not. It's a choice we're making though. So the guy that wrote the book, Abundant Community, which the, the project that Anne was involved in, I saw a video gave one time and he talked about how we have been trained to be passive consumers. We get trained by corporations you know, you think the Amazon delivery or the Instacart delivery of your groceries. And that municipal governments have done the same thing. And I think politicians are pretty guilty at election time of promising to do whatever people want. And uh, the, the gist of what John McKnight, the author of that book, said was um, we, then, we then become so passive that we're not out and about 
engaging with our community. We're not looking after our community. You know, it used to drive me crazy the amount of money that the city spends on snow uh, uh, clearing in the winter, millions of dollars on a snowstorm, and no one wants to talk about the personal responsibility of getting snow tires. This is a winter city, people should have noticed. Um, so anyways, the because we look after everybody's needs is the argument. They could just sort of sit on their couch. Less need, less likelihood of getting out and getting involved with their neighborhood and the needs it has. So I, don't, I just find that, I don't know if it's completely true and it's not completely true. There's some people who are obviously active involved in their neighborhoods, but it's fascinating to me how we have, we are closer to the matrix perhaps than we've ever been. And, and it's up to all of us to describe the city we want to live in in the future and, and, and describe it to city councillors. And to your point, be educated about what, what we want from our city, like the wellness we expect our city to deliver us or hope it will deliver to us. Because yeah, if we're just talking about clearing snow and, and planting trees, that's, that's not exactly the city we want. We want those, those connections that feed our soul. And how does the city help foster those connections? And I think to your point about like Instacart and delivery, when you make that choice, it's one less human interaction. It's one fewer interaction you're going to have um, with, with the grocer. Well, I think we have, we haven't solved this one. Uh, social isolation, community connection. I think it's work that municipal government will have, all of us have ahead of us. Um, you know, faith, faith organizations are not as large as they used to be. Service clubs aren't as um, big a factor in people's lives as they used to be. So how do we connect? I think it's a question for all of us to ask ourselves. And, 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 and again, back to personal responsibility, as you mentioned, getting out, getting out, introducing yourself to your neighbors, um, going to events, introducing yourself to other people. Um, it's a nice way to live.